This week's podcast is brought to you by the State of Online STEM Education in the U.S., an upcoming national survey from the Online Learning Consortium and the Every Learner Everywhere Network. The survey will explore the online STEM landscape through the lenses of faculty, institutional leadership, researchers, and policymakers. Please sign up and take the survey at studyinput.com. That's studyinput.com. Hello and welcome to a bonus episode of the EdSurge podcast. I'm Jeff Young, an editor here at EdSurge, where we cover how education is changing. The nation is coming to grips with an epidemic of opioid addiction, a public health emergency that impacts hundreds of thousands of Americans. The latest stats from the U.S. government have that more than 130 people each day are dying of this, and many of these folks started their drug nightmare with a valid prescription from a doctor to help soothe pain, but ended up hooked, putting their lives and those around them into a downward spiral. I'm kind of struggling here not to get overdramatic, but this is just a big crisis. Today, we're going to talk about the youngest victims of the opioid crisis. They're preschoolers whose parents or caregivers misuse painkillers or have moved on to addictions to heroin or other street drugs as a result. One expert called these kids America's lost generation. But of course, educators haven't given up on these little kids, but they recognize teaching them brings unique challenges. My colleague Emily Tate has spent the last couple months exploring this subject, and you can read her long-form article about the investigation on insurge.com today. I sat down with Emily just the other day to find out what she learned and to go behind the story of her trip to classrooms at the heart of the opioid crisis. A warning, this episode contains some graphic moments, and, and it's probably not ideal to listen to with kids around. Emily, where, where did you end up going for your reporting for this? So I went to Ohio, and uh, that may not be surprising for a lot of people. It seems like every story in every national paper that you read about the opioid epidemic has a dateline with some Ohio town. Um, and that was the case for me, too. That's because Ohio is at the heart of this problem. Ohio has the second highest rate of opioid overdose deaths in the country, second only to West Virginia. And in the last decade, the state has seen a 300% increase in opioid overdose deaths. Um, So that's pretty alarming. But while that state is um, perhaps one of the worst affected by this disease, It also is the one getting out front of this issue with a program that is helping um, really small children who are impacted by opioids um, indirectly through their family members a lot of times. So these are children who have experienced severe childhood trauma, um, often in conjunction with substance abuse in their families. And it's really doing a lot to help them work through that and get them back on track so that they can go on to live full, healthy, and prosperous lives. Yeah, so it sounds like this is a place where the issue is, is looms large, but also a place where some solutions are are at work or some, some efforts are underway to try to address this. Exactly. Yeah, so I went and visited the Therapeutic Interagency Preschool Program, also known as TIP. Um, and TIP serves three, four, and five-year-olds in Ohio, Um, that have experienced severe childhood trauma, um, and it helps them work through those experiences through one-on-one counseling services, a targeted social-emotional learning curriculum, 
And small class sizes, so fewer children for every teacher than is normally seen in a preschool. The TIP program was founded about 30 years ago in 1989 by two women at the Cincinnati Children's Hospital, and it's still available there. But it's also now being used in two other counties in Ohio, and I visited Butler County, um, which is in southwest Ohio, and in particular, I spent three days in Hamilton, which is a small city of about 60,000 people. So Hamilton, Ohio is a small city, the county seat of Butler County, um, with about 60,000 people. And driving through it, it's got um, a really elegant courthouse and other municipal buildings and a cute downtown with coffee shops and a park and um, a river running through it. it. It looks like any sort of small Ohio town. Um, and actually, I always thought that that's all, all it was. Prior to visiting there last fall for this story, I had driven through Hamilton, Ohio probably 20 or 30 times to get to the college campus where I lived for four years that's just a few miles away. But for the first 20 or 30 times that I drove through that town and its town square, I never realized what's going on if you pull back the curtain. And um, what I found is that actually just one block off of the street that I would drive through is where this TIP program is housed in a Head Start building with several classrooms. Um, It's actually a refurbished church there's some language to learn to understand how these educators are, are measuring the trauma these kids have gone through. Um, one of the terms you encountered is apparently adverse childhood experiences or ACEs. What are those? Yeah, I'm glad you brought this up because this is really important to understand not only what these children have been through, but how to measure it. So the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study was a study done in the 1990s by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and Kaiser Permanente. Um, It was a groundbreaking study that looked at how adverse childhood experiences, or um, put simply, childhood trauma, affects a person over time. And what it found is that the more adverse childhood experiences someone has... And this could be you or me who have had things that happened early on in our lives. Um, The more they have, the smaller chance they have of staying on track in life and living a full and healthy life. And that can seem um, like a really big suggestion, but there is so much research to back this up. People who have more experiences with trauma early in their lives are more likely to be incarcerated, to have a substance abuse problem to suffer from toxic stress, to commit violence, or to live in poverty. Um, The the numbers are really astounding. And uh, since that study was published, a lot of people have used it, especially um, with young children. And it's been boiled down to about 10 ACEs questions. Um, Now, those look at things like has did a person experience emotional abuse before the age of 18? Did they witness domestic violence? Did they experience sexual abuse? Were they in a household with someone with a mental illness? Um, was a parent ever incarcerated? Did they have a single parent? You get the idea. 
The CDC, which originally uh, performed that study, estimates that 36% of Americans have never experienced an ACE, and just 12% have had four or more of the 10 ACEs. The children in this TIP program that I visited have an average of seven out of 10. So seven, seven out of 10. Seven. And I cannot stress enough how high a number that is and just the stories that must be behind those numbers for each of these children. And and I, I heard these stories in the days that I spent there. You have two brothers who are in TIP together in separate classrooms Um, But the older of the two, who's almost five, was physically abused terribly in his first few years. And his physical growth is stunted. His emotional development is behind. Wow. Um, And, you know, Emily, when I read the when I read your story at first, I kind of had this feeling because there's a there's a piece. I think there's a line in your story that says something to the effect of some of these kids have experienced more you know, some negative experiences in their in their young lives than than many people do in a whole lifetime. And I was like, well, that sounds a little exaggerated. But basically, these these numbers kind of suggest that's true. I mean, just that is just actually true. Yeah, it's true. Um, and, you know, I think there tends to be a misconception that because they're children and their memories of this will fade and oh, kids are so resilient that they'll bounce back and it'll be OK. But it's really not that simple. Um some kids, like the the boy with the outburst in class, externalizes it. But actually, they said that a lot of the girls um, internalize this and really may not be able to have manifestations of what they experience as a young child until they're teenagers or maybe even adults. And this affects your relationships. It affects your um, mental and your physical health. It, it really has reverberations throughout everything that happens to a person in the rest of their life. I'm curious... What does this program look like? What does the classroom approach that you saw look like? Yeah, so at the end of the day, it's still a preschool classroom. The kids are still there to learn and develop. Um, So if you were just stepping in for a few minutes, you might not think anything was different. But over the course of a few days and, um, of course, many interviews, I really got to peel back the layers of the onion and understand um, the bolstered services that are helping these kids um, get back on track. So one of the things that is really important is that for an average Head Start classroom across the country, there's going to be two teachers and 17 kids. But because the needs of these children in TIP are so great, they actually have a much lower ratio. So it's three teachers for every 12 to 14 children. And that goes a long way because if one child is, uh, you know, throwing toys or acting out, then that diverts one of the teacher's attention and the other two are able to work with the other kids. One of the things that I thought was most remarkable is the one-on-one mental health services that the children get. So the TIP program has a licensed professional counselor on staff. Um, Her name is Jennifer Minnick, and she has actually been with the program for 10 years. And she knows how to work with these children and how to help them work through what they've seen and experienced and then um, move on from it. So uh, she has this office where the kids go one at a time. They're pulled out from class and they go with her into her office. And it's 
bathed in cool colors and has a sandbox and a dollhouse and um, lots of squishy toys, things that are very sensory. But there's also a lot of things that help them articulate their feelings, which they may not understand very well at that age and may not have a name for. Um, so she, she helps them tell her where it hurts when they when they talk about something that's difficult. Maybe it's, you know, they haven't seen dad in a few months. Um, or, you know, maybe they saw mom or dad get taken away by police. And these are real things that they shared with me, that, that the staff shared with me. Um, so she gets to ask them, like, where do you feel that? And what does that feel like? And help give them names for things. But um, things like the dollhouses uh, are helpful because she can just play with these children and through that learn more about what they've experienced and help them all of the staff understand um, their backgrounds and what they've been through and that may be um, as you know awful as it sounds acting out a drug deal um, or hiding in next to the bed just to cut in we actually have a piece of tape from uh, Emily's interview with Jennifer Minnick and I'm going to just play a little bit of that it's fun because the girls will use the dollhouse and all the people and sometimes the boys want to use the dollhouse too but they use all the cars and trucks as the people and a lot of times they end up acting out things that they've lived through things that they're stuck in you know sometimes kids get stuck in the trauma and they need to be able to they can tell you about it over and over again but they can't stop talking about the exact same incident that occurred and so my job as a therapist then would be to help them come through that trauma and talk about the what ifs and how could mommy or daddy have done that differently and what are all the wonderful things you were able to do to keep yourself safe and you have to get them through it so they're not stuck in it anymore and they can let it go. What is it like for the teachers in these classrooms? Yeah, so this is something I went in being really curious about because over the last few months, I've been writing about the early childhood workforce and all of the challenges that professionals in that workforce face. And let me tell you, they face many. Um, but this is a whole different ballgame. With each of the teachers and the director and the counselor that I mentioned, in each of those interviews, I asked them what it's like for them to carry the stories of these children after class ends, you know, how do they, how do they cope? How do they deal with this? Um, because frankly, even just being there for a couple of days, it really weighed on me. Um, and at first some of them shrugged it off, you know, they're just kids and we're just trying to give everybody, um, the same education, but digging a little bit deeper they struggle. I mean, this is really hard work and experiencing the secondary trauma of being around these children who have been through so much and hearing their stories and having to sometimes be subpoenaed and appear before court in one of their custody cases. Um, it's a lot. And uh, several of the teachers mentioned, you know, the strategies that they've developed to cope with this, whether it's as one person put it, she cries it out when she has to. Another person says that she goes home in colors. Um, you know, the program itself encourages staff to lean on each other, to talk through 
experiences that might have been triggering for them with a child. And and that's a very real problem because almost everyone on staff is from this area and in some way or another has been touched by the opioid epidemic. Emily, it sounds like we have actually some tape of one of these teachers, Andrea Jackson, talking about this issue. I had to find something to have that release. And literally, that was just my 45-minute drive home, literally turning the music up full blast. People probably think I'm nuts when they pull up next to me and they hear some crazy music just on full blast. So Andrea has three children of her own, all under the age of 10. And um, she told me she, she joined TIP as a lead teacher last summer and told me that early on she realized that she couldn't take this work home with her because if she did, it would take away from the precious time she has with her own children. So she figured out something that works for her and very matter-of-factly told me that what she does is um, get in the car for her 45-minute commute home and just let it all out, whether that's screaming or crying or what, just turning the music all the way up. So how are things going with the TIP program? Are they are they getting results? Uh, yeah, the program really works. So the staff use several different assessments to measure the children's progress over the course of a year. One that measures their social-emotional development, they use three different times throughout the year, um, and that informs the different strategies they use with each child in counseling and in class. Um, but another thing they use is the trauma symptom checklist for young children, and they conduct that at the very beginning of the year and at the very end. And on average, children's trauma symptoms, and this includes anxiety, anger and aggression, post-traumatic stress disorder, and depression, um, on average, children's symptoms are reduced by half over the course of one school year. And that's pretty remarkable because reduction of those symptoms means that they're going to be more prepared to focus in school and in their academic learning when it comes to kindergarten, and that they're going to be better with um, attachment and relationships. They're going to be better at self-regulating. It really goes a long way. Um, But also anecdotally, these teachers and their families note that kids who come through the program are um, dramatically changed. So I actually... Um, had the opportunity to visit with one family um, who has a child in the program. Um, And the boy who's now four, his name is Ryder. Uh, I talked with his mother who had actually used opioids herself for the last few years, but um, has recently gotten clean and regained custody of her children. Um, She described that Ryder a couple years ago was you know, kicking, screaming, hurting his infant brother, um, lots of outbursts all the time, really had no way of expressing himself. Um, to now, after one year in tip, he, he knows how to explain what he's feeling. He knows how to just understand for himself what he's feeling and take that to an adult and then figure out a way to make that better, which is really so important for a child, any child, whether they've experienced trauma or not. Um, But, um, you know, another thing about this program that I would add is that they, they do a lot to engage families. And a lot of times this is foster families or, um, 
you know, relatives outside of the nuclear family. That's just the reality of children in this situation. But they work with families that have custody of these children to make sure that they know how to take home the strategies and use them there so that a kid doesn't have, you know, a super peaceful environment at school and then go home at night and everything's chaos. You know, you want to keep that consistency. Um, So when I visited that mother and her four-year-old, um, I noticed that she was doing some of the things that they do in class. And that means when he gets overly excited, um, she knew to squat down to his level and look at him in the eyes and take some deep breaths so that he could mimic her. And I just thought that was so amazing because I, you know, if you imagine where they were as a family a year or two ago, it's just really spectacular gains. And, and there's some momentum that this program is being used in other, in other states and areas? That's right. So um, the folks at the TIP program in Butler County present on their approach in um, different counties throughout Ohio, in different cities in the Midwest, um, and they've gotten a lot of interest. So I mentioned that three counties in Ohio, including Butler, currently offer the TIP program. But another 30 counties have expressed interest in bringing it to their communities. Um, But so have some in Michigan. And recently, the TIP program and other programs like it have caught the attention of Congress. In December, Congress appropriated $250 million to support programs in either establishing or expanding um, services like trauma-informed care, which is what the TIP program uses. So um, it specifically mentions going into areas that have seen a rise of adverse childhood experiences, which are those ACEs that we mentioned at the beginning, um, and expanding mental health services, strengthening family services, and hiring staff so that they can lower their teacher-child ratios. These things that are in that bill from Congress are all the things that you see at TIP. So I think that's really a testament to what this program has done and how it is a model for others. If you don't mind, I actually have kind of a personal question, Emily. I mean, it's a tough subject matter. What was it like for you as a reporter? Yeah, um, you know, I would never compare my experiences of hearing these stories to the the people I met who actually experienced it. But um, I spent about three days in Butler County, Ohio, and it certainly took a toll on me. Um, you know, I think it was it was just a really sharp realization of what this crisis looks like. You know, at being a reporter that writes about education and talks to educators, I just can't help but think that these educators in particular, for really no additional gain, um, just put invest so much of themselves in this work, um, work that is very personal for a lot of them, that is very emotionally taxing, um, and they do it simply because they feel like it's the right thing to do and that they can maybe help these children. And it's working, um, but I just can't say enough about what the staff did and is doing every single day to hopefully make these children's lives a little bit better. Well, thanks so much, Emily, for sharing this this tough story with with our readers and listeners. Yeah, thanks for having me. I really hope that, um, you know, people will learn something from this. This has been a bonus episode of the Ed Search Podcast. Once again, we we do encourage you to read Emily's story on our website. It's at edsurge.com. 
as regular listeners to this podcast know, um, we drop our regular episodes every Tuesday, exploring how education is changing. And we talk to all sorts of folks. Recently, we had on bestselling author Dave Eggers. Uh, check that one out if you didn't see it. We've also uh, talked to parents struggling to pay for college for their kids. Uh, we talked to students fighting for data privacy, lots and lots of teachers. Check out our past episodes um, wherever you listen to podcasts or go to edsurge.com and click on podcasts. This episode was edited and produced by me, Jeff Young. Thanks again to Emily Tate for taking the time to join us, and thanks for listening.